From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Large conservation organizations are coming under fire from activists who charge that the groups get an unfair share of donations and sacrifice the rights of Native peoples in the name of science and practical politics. If you read their reports, um, they talk about many things that they do with indigenous community except defending their rights to land and territory and their self-determination. But conservation groups insist they respect the rights of indigenous peoples who live on lands targeted for the protection of biological diversity. Our engagement is to assist in a participatory process in which uh, they make the decision for the long-term health and use of their resources. If they don't want to protect the resource, that, I believe, is their decision. Conservation pros and cons this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Not long ago, in the Congo Basin in Central Africa, the government designated forests as national park and reserves with the support of a large international conservation group. In the process, the indigenous pygmies were displaced or evicted from their traditional homelands. The expulsion of indigenous communities in the name of conservation is not a new phenomenon. Indeed, here in the United States, Native Americans were forced off lands that would become national parks and forests. And today, some activists and private funders are voicing concerns that large conservation groups put scientific objectives and cozy relationships with governments ahead of the rights and needs of indigenous folk. Mac Chapin is one of them. He's an anthropologist, director of the Center for Native Lands, and author of a controversial article in the current issue of World Watch magazine. In particular, Mac Chapin points an accusing finger at wealthy conservation organizations, including the World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, and Conservation International. Mac Chapin joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much, Steve. Mac, uh, what are the conservation groups doing wrong, in your opinion? You've had a lot of the money concentrated in the hands of the big conservation groups. And there's been something of a Walmartization of conservation through this, where they've been swallowing up a lot of the local nonprofit organizations working in conservation, especially in foreign countries, and pretty much taking over the agenda for themselves. There's a lot of talk in the 1990s, early 1990s, about forming partnerships with indigenous peoples to work together to save ecosystems. That talk has largely disappeared, and the new partners of the conservation groups are corporations, funders, the World Bank. They've partnered with the people that have the money and the power, and they've neglected the people on the ground. Can we have some examples here, some specifics here? Certainly. I know Latin America the best, and uh, you find that in uh, Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador, the Amazon region of those countries, uh, you find things like the uh, Enron pipeline, which runs through the Chiquitano forest in Bolivia. And you have, let me see, it's the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International are making deals with Enron 
to try and, let's say, mitigate some of the damage that goes on and to create a conservation fund which the conservation groups would manage. Now, on the surface, this might sound okay, but the indigenous people live throughout the Chiquitano forest, and they haven't been involved in any of these negotiations. So it's really been ignoring the indigenous peoples um, for what's going on in these regions and the conservationists running their own agendas. There's another example called the Energy and Biodiversity Initiative, which was started by Conservation International a few years ago. And this is to set up partnerships with Chevron, Texaco, and Shell, uh, some of the big energy companies. Indigenous people are simply not involved in any of this, and it really scares them. What happens, in your view, when indigenous people aren't involved in these negotiations and these deals? to protect their lands. Well, how would you feel if somebody came into your area and started making all kinds of deals with energy companies and, uh, say, timber companies and so forth, and you weren't involved at all, yet your fate depends on what these deals are? Well, I probably wouldn't feel very good, but, but what if I, in fact, was busy clear-cutting as fast as I could to my lands, perhaps not acting in the best interest of long-term conservation? I think the damage done by indigenous peoples, let's say with slash-and-burn agriculture, other practices, is extremely minimal compared to what happens with the companies that come in. The amount of contamination that's come from these oil companies is massive. And here you have lawsuits going on between indigenous peoples and these large companies and the conservation groups are supporting the large companies. In your view, what do you think needs to be done to protect uh, worldwide biological diversity? It seems to me that a couple of things have to happen before we get any progress in this area. One is that the donors, and I'd put the burden on the donors, the donors have to stop giving money to the large conservation groups so they can work with indigenous peoples because that leads to control. What they have to do is start figuring out how to give money to the indigenous groups themselves directly or through intermediaries that are responsible, but somehow bypass the large conservation groups and try and strengthen the indigenous organizations so that they have the capacity to come forward and negotiate directly with the conservation groups. Uh, the second thing that I think needs to be done is we have to somehow do some in-depth, impartial studies of what the conservation groups are doing in the field. We don't have any right now. We've got some accusations of abuse on one side and then uh, some sort of sugary uh, project descriptions coming from the conservation groups about what they're doing. But we don't really know, for example, if this emphasis on large-scale conservation is working. We don't know what works out there in the field and what doesn't work and why, under what circumstances. We just don't have much information on this. And if we can somehow sort of cool off the emotions and go in there and try and figure out what's going on and how we can better fix the system, 
rather than simply justifying what's already going on, then we can move forward. Matt Chapin is the director of the Center for Native Lands. His article, A Challenge to Conservationists, appeared in the November-December 2004 issue of World Watch magazine. You can also find it on the Living on Earth website. That's www.livingonearth.org. Mac, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. Anthropologist Mac Chapin is among a number of folk raising questions about the treatment of indigenous peoples who reside in areas of interest to conservationists. Rebecca Adamson, a member of the Cherokee Nation, has written articles for philanthropy groups about this topic, and so has journalist and author Mark Daly. Well, how are some of the big conservation groups and indigenous representatives responding? Joining me now to discuss some of these issues is Peter Seligman, who's CEO of Conservation International. Hello, Peter. Hello. And uh, Guillermo Castilleja, who's vice president for the World Wildlife Fund's Latin American and Caribbean programs. Hello, sir. Hello. Also, Sanjan is with us. He's the lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy. Hello, Steve. And Armstrong Wiggins is the director of the Central and South America program at the Indian Law Resource Center. He's a Mosquito Indian who's originally from Nicaragua. Hello. Hello. Uh, And gentlemen, before we we begin our discussion, I just want to look back in history a little bit at the legacy of of Teddy Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was president in, in 1901. He did a lot for conservation. He added, what, 150 million acres to our national forests and uh, encouraged the Forest Service to adopt uh, selective cutting practices. But he wasn't terribly happy about Native peoples on these lands. In fact, he tended to despise them as savages. And let me just read to you a quote from his book, Winning the West. In Winning the West, Roosevelt writes, quote, The rude, fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. It is of incalculable importance that America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of their red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners and become the heritage of the dominant world races. So while Teddy Roosevelt created, what, five new national parks and the National Wildlife Refuge System, he also helped instill in the conservation movement an ideology of white preference that some would say has yet to be fully shed. And let me turn to you first, uh, Armstrong Wiggins. Tell me, uh, it's been said that when an organization has lots of money, it shifts the balance of of power in their relationship with indigenous groups, and these organizations tend to be northern and white, and indigenous groups tend to be people of color. From your perspective, how true is that? Um, Lately, there's a lot of money coming in from World Bank and uh, USAID and others uh, to create parks to protect the environment. And as you know, indigenous people are the ones that live in those um, areas that are still pristine from environmental point of view. But we have a different perspective uh, as indigenous community, indigenous people that uh, was found here by the white men when they came from Europe. And we still demand and defend the rights of our land and territories. And, um, and those rights, I think, is not being addressed clearly by these big environmental organizations, even though if they have partnership uh, with some indigenous community, if you read their reports, um, they talk about many things that they do with indigenous community except defending their rights to land and territory and their self-determination. Give me an example of what you're talking about here, please. Example in Nicaragua, we um, developed a partnership with WWF in in the the 90s and uh, tried to support the community of Awastigny. 
the case was that the Nicaraguan go government gave a concession to Korean logging company to clear cut the, the uh, Awastingni community land, and um, we were trying to stop the concession. Armstrong, what was the World Wildlife Fund trying to accomplish in Nicaragua? Well, the, the same goal that we are trying to um, develop a very responsible uh, forestry program in Nicaragua, uh, protected area, Mosquito Coast protected area, working with the Nicaraguan government. But of course, the government changes, and the Minister of Natural Resources, uh, Jaime Inser, uh, when he left, somebody else came in and they wanted to do something else uh, against environment, against indigenous community. And we decided to take the case to the uh, court system uh, against Nicaragua. Uh, the um, the institution was not willing to, to do that because they have double standard sometimes. Uh, they don't really want to uh, go all the way to support the rights of indigenous people. That doesn't necessarily mean individual in the institution, but sometimes the institution uh, have that uh, uh, feeling about not challenging this government because they're afraid they kick them out of the country. Uh, they don't do that in the United States. Uh, they go all the way. But in Latin America, because USAID money, uh, they get through that um, partnership with the government, they're afraid to lose that money, and they don't want to go all the way to protect the environment and the rights of indigenous peoples. We're speaking with Armstrong Wiggins, director of the Central and South America program at the Indian Law Resource Center, which is based in Washington, D.C. Coming up, representatives of the big three conservation groups have their say. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We just heard from Armstrong Wiggins of the Indian Law Resource Center about a contract the Nicaraguan government made with a Korean company to clear-cut indigenous people's land. Mr. Wiggins says the World Wildlife Fund had partnered with the Awastigni to protect their forests, but when the Resource Center went to court to sue the government in support of the Awastigni community, he says WWF stood back and watched, perhaps out of fear of being kicked out of Nicaragua. Guillermo Castillejo, you're the vice president of the World Wildlife Fund's Latin America and Caribbean program. Uh, how accurate is Armstrong Wiggins' assessment of what happened between your organization and the Awastigni in Nicaragua? I think where I agree with him strongly is that conservation and in this particular case that we're referring to in Nicaragua, indigenous rights go hand in hand. And this is something that has been very clear from WWF from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, uh, the case that Armstrong is referring to uh, in the community of Aguastigni, it's uh, a project that WWF started. Uh, as we wanted to engage with uh, this local indigenous community in better managing their forest resources. When we realized that man forest management could not happen without legal recognition of, their of the ancestral lands of this community, we sought support from the Indian Law Resource Center and from others who came and helped in this process. At the end of the day, the process didn't go right, as Armstrong is, is saying, and, uh, and the government refused to recognize the, the, the rights of this community. The case was brought to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Uh, I personally testified in support of the community's claim, and the case was ultimately won. So uh, I oh, think... Oh, wait a second here. Armstrong, he's saying everything went right in Nicaragua. Um, 
seems like I'm two different universes here. Yeah, I think um, uh, you need to understand that in, in an institution, <laughs> Guillermo Castilla is an incredible guy in that sense. He was uh, very supportive of, uh, and he and I and um, other colleagues started this process. But then he was moved to another region, and uh, the others that came and become in charge of Central America uh, was too afraid to confront the uh, Nicaraguan government. Um, they were not prepared to go all away, and this is what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, let, let me ask Mr. Castilleja uh, about this. Uh, he, he says that the uh, World Wildlife Fund wasn't willing to, quote, go all the way, that you left him standing there. How, how, how fair is that? Well, as I said, uh, we continued supporting the process uh, in many different ways, including uh, the legal case that was brought to the Inter-American Court. Uh, and I, as I said, participated in the process by testifying on behalf of the community. Let me ask you, uh, to what extent do you include indigenous groups uh, on the board of your organization, the World Wildlife Fund, or I should say representatives of such groups? Well, WWF is, uh, is a global network. Uh, we have uh, a network of organizations uh, basically uh, uh, covering 25 countries, and then we have presences in 25 other countries. And in each case, we have boards uh, that have representation of local society. We have Indians running WWF India. We have uh, people from the Philippines running uh, WWF Philippines. And so we, we think that uh, the WWF does represent, in large part, uh, the diversity, cultural uh, diversity of the places where we work. So you include indigenous people on your overall board? We would have to go case by case, but yes. All right. Can I say something here? Uh, this is Armstrong Wiggins. Yes. This issue needs to be investigated really um, carefully, and we need more information on this uh, because we're getting report from all over the Americas and the world that uh, is, I mean, I mean, you're talking about WWF uh, where... They're the most conscious group from the big guys, but there are other big guys that are not so conscious as WWF that are also affecting indigenous community uh, um, in Guyana, in Suriname, in other places. Who, who are you talking about I'm here? talking about Conservation International. I'm talking about Nature Conservancy and other groups. Uh, All right, let me start. The let, fact let. is they don't talk about indigenous rights. Uh, they only talk about collaboration. The, the fact is that they have a lot of money uh, they get from USAID and World Bank and others, but they never reach to the communities. And the communities are not feeling they're part of their owners of this project. Uh, in, and so when they pull out of these countries, uh, environments suffer. All right. I want you to specifically say uh, what the bone is you might have to pick with Conservation International because we have... Uh, uh, the CEO of Conservation International with us now, and I'd like him to, to be able to respond to the specifics. So specifically, you felt that Conservation International did did or did not do uh, exactly what in Guyana you're talking about? Well, they need to work with the Indian organization in Guyana and, and come up with the clear plans and that they feel like uh, they are also part of the team and uh, they also um, can get the benefit uh, from being their land that they want to protect can be a, a protected area run by indigenous community and also um, get the economic benefit uh, that CI can bring in for indigenous people so that uh, they can uh, uplift their economic status and be engaged. 
All right, Peter Seligman, you hear the complaint. Uh, how accurate uh, is Mr. Wiggins' assessment? The, uh, the concern that uh, Armstrong has raised about uh, the need for communities and indigenous uh, peoples to be involved in ownership of conservation efforts is very real, and I agree with him. I disagree with him very strongly in terms of his characterization of what CI does and has done in Guyana. There is a tripartite agreement that was signed by the village chief, village council of the YY community uh, in southern Guyana, uh, a representative of the government of Guyana, and a representative of CI, at which title to more than one million acres of YY lands was granted in February of 2004 to the YY. We are at CI are working with the YY to jointly develop the land and resource use practices that will satisfy the YY needs while also conserving ecosystems and biodiversity. In this particular case and in all the other cases where Conservation International has worked, we've entered into agreements at the invitation of the communities. We also, and this is also very important to understand, firmly believe and have felt this since the origin of the organization that it is fundamental that indigenous peoples have ownership, title, and control over their own landscape. Indigenous communities are as heterogeneous as any other community in the world. There are uh, people that want to conserve and people that want to develop. Our engagement is to assist in a participatory process in which uh, they make the decision for the long-term health and use of their resources. If they don't want to protect the resource, that, I believe, is their decision. If indigenous groups don't want to protect it, well, then that's their decision. Um, what do you mean by that, and what does Conservation International do in those circumstances? Walk away and say, look, local folks don't want to protect this, therefore we shouldn't be involved? Well, it, as I said, it is their decision, and um, we will do everything in our that we can do to work with them and show them that it is in their best interest in terms of the future of their young people and the future of their options uh, in terms of generating wealth and health that they should be engaged in conservation. You say they own the land and that's that, but in many cases, particularly with indigenous uh, groups, uh, there's not a formal recognition of what land they might, quote, own, close quotes. Even if it's informal, the correct, honorable, and appropriate action is to deal with with the communities, even if it's an informal ownership. We would never and have never done anything differently. Now, I uh, have heard, I heard in the very beginning of this, Armstrong uh, say that, that CI has. He's wrong. Uh, I mean, he's wrong in that he had the example incorrect, but also I don't challenge his intent or his well-meaning or actually I don't, I don't challenge his core belief because I share his core belief. But it's very, very important that we do work collaboratively in changing the funding, changing the engagement, and giving the support to indigenous communities so that they uh, can work effectively to uh, protect their landscape, which is their, their future. It sounds to me, uh, Peter Seligman, that as CEO of Conservation International, that you feel that uh, some changes uh, have needed to be made over time, and perhaps more changes need to be made in terms of dealing with indigenous groups. Specifically, what changes do you have in mind? I believe and support very strongly Armstrong Wiggins' uh, suggestion 
that a uh, organization that is working with different sectors of society needs to have representatives from those sectors on the board of directors and governors. And I support and, and am committed to having a leader of the Indigenous Community on Conservation International's board. And I really welcome that call, and we will respond to that positively. Armstrong Wiggins, you've been waiting a long time here. Peter, the problem is, even in Guyana, it's very hard for you to really understand what we are going through. There was a serious, serious struggle between Wapishani community and YY because you guys just went one side and not working with the other side. And that created what we call divide and conquer um, approach, which indigenous people are very, very concerned about that. Uh, they need to work together. The Tushau uh, of indigenous um, uh, leaders uh, are very concerned about that. Um, these are Indian leaders, Indian chiefs, that they want to work with all the communities, not just divide them and then left the others in the cold. And so I think that's why Amerindian People Associations are very concerned in Guyana about uh, how they divide them and uh, and conquer uh, one group against the another. And I think that doesn't help the environment uh, struggle. I want to turn now to uh, Sanjin. You're the lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy. And I want to ask you about uh, a teaming uh, that you have made, the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International together. As I understand it, the, the two organizations recently teamed with a number of energy groups, including uh, BP, uh, Chevron, Texaco, and Shell, and came up with what's called the Energy and Biodiversity Initiative. The, the goals of this initiative, as stated on, um, I, actually I saw this on the Conservation International website, these goals are, quote, to develop and promote a framework of best practices for integrating biodiversity conservation into upstream oil and gas development. Tell me, what is your organization hoping to accomplish with this partnership, and to what extent are indigenous groups at the table? I, I saw no mention of them on the website describing this project. Well, uh, Steve, thanks very much. Uh, first, let me just uh, take a minute just to say that you know, the question of um, should we be working with indigenous communities is a bit moot. Um, the question is not should we, we must. Uh, the question really, and, and what I think we're trying to struggle here with, is how we carry out that work. You know, you started with, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and I'm here in Montana right now. And, you know, here's a state where the Nature Conservancy helped the Blackfeet uh, tribe establish the very first Native American land trust in the entire United States. So our history of working with indigenous people, local people, traditional people is, is long, and it, it occurs in many of the places in which the Conservancy works. In terms of working with industry, whether it be the energy industry or any other industry, they represent a sector of society. Many people are gainfully employed in these sectors. To simply ignore them would be foolish at best. We firmly believe that you need to make friends not just with your friends, but also with your enemies. The point of having dialogue with these sectors is in order to help move them from current practices to something slightly better. Slightly better doesn't sound terribly ambitious. It's incremental progress, and it's unrealistic to think you're going to have huge revolutions necessarily. Um, you're going to have an engagement, but they are probably promoted by a, a different set of beliefs and a different set of values. 
And it's that continual engagement that is going to get you to the place where you ultimately want to be. Uh, Peter Seligman? We are not looking for incremental changes. We're looking for very significant uh, changes in the way that the, the energy sector operates. Tell me, to what extent are indigenous groups involved in this energy and biodiversity initiative? The agreement that we have with the Nature Conservancy and BP is really looking at the challenge of uh, how do they extract, how do they reinvent the methodology of extraction. In that particular approach, um, the only people involved from CI and the people involved from the corporations are the people that are involved in that technical component. In terms of the... So so uh, no indigenous folks there at the table? I can't, I don't know the, I mean, the answer is, I don't know if the engineers from the uh, oil companies and the people that are involved are indigenous peoples or not. But, but, But no people from the indigenous communities where the oil industry is looking to drill? Well, we are not, if this effort was targeted at specific sites, indigenous people on the lands where the companies were drilling would be involved. But that's not the purpose of this particular agreement, and it's not located in any particular place. Uh, Peter Seligman, uh, I I think some of the critics here might say that this is the precise example of the problem that they're concerned about. Exactly. If, if, If indigenous people are relegated only to a portion of the decisions here, if they're not involved in the overall development of, of concepts, they become sort of an add-to uh, rather than part of the formulation. Uh, you know, oil companies have gotten into some pretty big pickles. With what's what's happening in Ecuador right now? <laughs> and there are issues in Ecuador and in a number of places. So the criticism... And Colombia, I mean... This is Armstrong uh, uh, Wiggins here uh, from the Indian Law Center speaking as well. The criticism is, is that you guys are leaving out indigenous folks at the formative stages here. And, and this is why indigenous groups are supporting McChapin's uh, article, uh, because um, I think collaboration between the conservation organization and the indigenous communities of an area and, uh, can result in a better, more effective conservation, because the big conservation organizations have all information, all the resources that can help us work with us and then go together and work towards uh, what you was questioning. If they don't do that, then uh, I think there's a serious problem, again, to divide and conquer our um, natural uh, resources because we live in a very pristine area that needs to be developed, but it needs to be developed uh, uh, sustainably. And this is why I think foundations, I think uh, Congress, our senators, are their aid, if it's list- they're listening right now, the Appropriation Commi- Committee need to think about this thing when they give money to AID to give to these big comp- um, conservation organizations to be uh, clearly uh, make sure that they work with indigenous people, but as as partners, to have them in their board, that they can make decisions, not uh, the pickings or the bones that fall from the, their table uh, that comes from Arlington, Virginia, or from Washington, D.C., uh, in, in, in a very rural area of Guyana or Nicaragua or, 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 or in Africa. Armstrong Wiggins is director of the Central and South American Program at the Indian Law Resource Center. We also spoke with Peter Seligman, CEO of Conservation International, Guillermo Castilleja, Vice President for World Wildlife Fund's Latin America and Caribbean Program, and Sanjan, the lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy. 
To read Matt Chapin's article, A Challenge to Conservationists, as well as responses from the World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, and the Nature Conservancy, log on to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. And, of course, we welcome your comments. Send them to comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Or call 1-800-218-9988. That's 1-800-218-9988. Real mail goes to Living on Earth at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Just ahead, reclaiming an indigenous homeland by painting a mountain. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid, a full hybrid SUV able to run on electric power alone at certain speeds. FordVehicles.com slash environment. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. During the past 30 years, Ecuador has become known for meticulously detailed paintings on sheepskin. The painters are Tigua Indians, and their work depicts life in the Andes Mountains, of which a recurring image is the nearly perfect snow-capped cone of their sacred mountain, Cotopaxi, the highest active volcano in the world. Notigua has set foot on Cotopaxi for three decades, since it became a national park and started charging admission. Recently, some Tigua painters decided it was time to go back, and producer Nancy Hand accompanied them as part of the Worlds of Difference series. In the village of Tigua, in the folds of Ecuador's highland moors, Julio Toaquisa and his son Alfonso stand in a long room, serenading visitors with a wooden flute and sheepskin drum. The walls surrounding them are hung with dozens of brightly colored paintings. They show hills quilted with fields of potatoes, beans, and barley, and condors circling over grazing sheep and llamas. Within this painted landscape, hovers the great white cone of their holy mountain, Cotopaxi. My name is Julio Toquisa. I learned to paint from a dream. Julio Toaquisa was the first Tigua painter. Now 57 years old, he stands barely five feet tall, his skin weathered by cold and wind. Julio married at 14 and had 12 children. Then one day, a shaman told him he would have an important dream. Don't let it go to waste, he said. And I thought to myself, I have no schooling or anything. What work is there for me? What dream am I going to have? But one night, Julio did have a dream. His wife was spinning yarn, and he was painting her image on sheepskin. I didn't know what to paint with. I went to buy dye, like the kind we use for panchos. I bought green, purple, black, and red. He began painting his people, who had worked this land since long before it became a country, named for the equator it straddles. That's how I learned, and I have taught all my children. Before they were in school, they were already helping me fill in colors. 
Thirty years later, most of the 1,500 Tiwa partly support themselves by painting. Their works have been shown in Washington and Paris. Visitors make the three-hour trip from Ecuador's capital, Quito, to Julio's one-room, dirt-floored house to meet the father of Tiwa art. This is my painting. This is Cotopaxi. Her grandfathers worshipped it. As a young man, Julio Toaquisa climbed the 19,000-foot volcano for sacred ceremonies. But in this painting, the climbers are white-skinned. They carry cameras. There are the tourists with their tents. They're taking pictures. They climb the mountain, then they buy paintings. The only Tigua people in this painting are far below, selling other paintings of Cotopaxi to tourists. Since Ecuador's government made the volcano a national park and began charging admission, Tigua don't go there. Now you have to pay to get in. Why don't they let our people go and see it, like our school children? But now Julio's son Alfonso has decided the time has come to go to the mountain. His father is too old and ill, so Alfonso has gathered some of his brothers and cousins, all painters, with their families to visit Cotopaxi for the first time. Mi nombre es Alfonso Toaquiza, el tercer hijo de Julio Toaquiza. Mi nombre es Edgar Toaquiza. ¿Cómo te llamas? Alex. Alex. Mi nombre es Alfredo Toaquiza. My name is Alfredo Toaquiza. I've been painting since I was eight years old. The group has ascended to a crowded rest stop snack bar halfway up the mountain. Alfredo, Julio's oldest son, almost looks bereaved. The ministry put in roads to bring tourists. This is Western thinking. In the past, we indigenous people only came at night or on special days, and we would only walk in certain areas to worship Cotopaxi and the sun. Next time I'll come up another route, because this part has been contaminated. The spirits of the mountains must be hiding. Leaving the din of the rest stop behind, the group of 13 Tigua now trudge through snow and sleep to reach the foot of Cotopaxi's glacier at 15,000 feet. The children throw snowballs. The women, wrapped in shawls, carry pots of cooked potatoes on their backs. One cousin takes out a flute to greet the spirit of the mountain. Alfonso Tuaquisa breaks off a piece of ancient ice and puts it in his mouth. I'm feeling a tremendous energy sheltering us. The sensation is very, very sacred. With a sharp stone, Alfonso chips pieces of the mountain. He scoops up handfuls of cobalt blue, rust red, moss green, and coal black pebbles to take back to his studio and to his father. There's a great treasure here. These are powerful rocks, rocks that have been living for millions of years. Unlike his older brother, Alfonso does not think the spirit of the mountain is hiding from the tourists. I think the spirit is sheltering all of us, not just indigenous people. Its energy travels throughout the world. That spirit, he believes, is what inspires outsiders to buy their paintings. What great energy from the thousands of years this mountain, Father Cotopaxi, has lived, witness to everything. I think everyone must feel that. For Living on Earth, I'm Nancy Hand. Our
Our story on Ecuador's Tigua painters was co-produced by Alan Weissman for Worlds of Difference, a project of Homelands Productions. For photos and more information about the Tigua, visit our website, livingonearth.org. Just ahead, getting ready to celebrate the holidays. But first, this note on emerging science from Jen Goodman. In what you might call Revenge of the South Paws, researchers have discovered that lefties hold a decided advantage in both fighting and close contact sports, and this edge may explain why left-handedness has survived natural selection. If nature had its way, we'd all be right-handed, but between 10 to 15% of the world's population are southpaws. The reason? Developmental experts believe that left-handedness is caused by stress to the fetus, either during early developmental stages or during birth. The stress diverts the nervous system from its typical right-handed path. And because developmental stress also correlates to such conditions as low birth weight and reduced lifespan, it might be expected that the left-handed trait would eventually be selected out. But researchers have discovered just the opposite. They've found that left-handers are thriving, particularly in the most violent societies. In a study in the current issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society, researchers looked at tribes in eight traditional societies and compared the frequency of left-handed people in the population with their society's murder rates. They discovered that the most peaceful societies had the lowest percentage of left-handers, while the more violent societies had many more left-handed survivors. The findings suggest that left-handers are more successful in hand-to-hand combat or fighting situations. And indeed, this benefit may outweigh the cost of the stress that creates left-handedness. Although the research was conducted among tribes in traditional societies, similar results can be observed in Western society. Confrontational sports such as boxing or fencing, for example, have seen more than their fair share of successful southpaws. By the way, the word southpaw, it comes from baseball, where once again lefties often have an advantage. Since baseball diamonds are designed so that batters face east, away from the sun, a pitcher's left hand, or paw, faces south. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jen Goodman. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's the time of the winter solstice, and that means it's also time for Living on Earth's annual holiday storytelling special, which we'll present on next week's program. This year we'll be taking you to Appalachia, where the music and the literature often speak of the longing to get back home. The steep mountains and deep valleys of Appalachia tend to keep people from traveling much, especially in the days before the automobile came along. So when Appalachian folk did go away for education or to find jobs, the kin back home had ambivalent feelings about that. Some scornfully called it getting above your raisin. Others simply felt the loss of close families and friends. So the pull to be home is especially fierce for Appalachians. And we'll be hearing all about it next week on our holiday storytelling special. And here's a bit of a preview. One of our guests will be Irene McKinney, West Virginia Poet Laureate and author of the new book of poems, Vivid Companion. Here's one of her poems and a little bit about how she came to write it. I'm thinking about the uh, sort of non-eventfulness of a lot of country life here, which I find extremely agreeable and extremely um, conducive to human peace. And this is based on a memory of a farm next to ours. Potts Farm, Summer, 1955. Faint smells of violet, bleach, cheese. 
the starched doilies sag on the arms of the horsehair sofa. Aunt Floss is baking bread and laughing, clacking her false teeth. The house breathes smoke of bitter locust, and Uncle Branch sits grinning on and on, spitting into the fire. Night cloths in the corner with the smoke, with the yellow pages of books, the green and eggshell creton, and Grandmother floats in her rocker and moves back and forth all afternoon. All afternoon, and the rinsed haze lifts from the cut grass and peonies fleshing in clumps along the wire fence. It's time now for the mailman leaving in his tattered jeep. It's time for us to call the cows who are waiting below in the printed mud by the pond. Time for the imperceptible chaff to fall and the hay to shift in the barn. Also joining us will be Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage from West Virginia Public Radio. Larry's favorite Appalachian poet is Louise McNeil Pease. And here's Larry reading a section from her autobiography, The Milkweed Ladies. Louise was uh, the poet laureate for many years before Irene, and, uh, and Irene certainly has, has taken up the torch in a great way, but she, she knew Louise very well also, uh, and I first heard her when I came to West Virginia the first year I came. I, I read one of her poems and uh, really kind of fell in love with, uh, with her whole spirit. And this is one of the few prose things she wrote. She was basically a poet, but this is about her life uh, as a young girl in Pocahontas County, which is right in the heart of West Virginia, one of the most uh, remote counties, and it's the uh, has the highest uh, average elevation of any place east of the Mississippi River. And this is uh, uh, the very last chapter of this book called Milkweed Ladies, which was, uh, as I say, uh, her memoir kind of of her, her girlhood and then later. After I left the farm, I often felt as I had when I used to plumb the depth of water as a child. In summer, after every big rainstorm, a flood would come, and our tiny cow spring trickle would become a roaring stream that flowed foamy and green over the leaning grasses. I would go out barefoot in the early morning with a long straight pole, and with my dress tied up above my knees, I would wade along the shallows to measure the deep holes. I felt my way out into the current and walked slowly upstream, my feet and legs stinging with the cold. As I walked on and on up through the wild morning, I would become John Ridd of Lorna Dune with his trident, walking up the spate of Dune Valley. Then the mountains would come dark and close around me. I walked until I could feel the black danger and death in it, as I am walking still. For you walk to death, don't you? Because you cannot ride. Aunt Melindy told me, that old women in the night can see. And now that I am old and often cannot sleep at night, I see pictures in the dark. I close my eyes, and long ago pictures float before me, all in color and shadow, framed in the soft fog of the years. Most often, I seem to be standing in our yard at home and looking in through the big room window, and we're all there together in the firelight. G.D., my brother Ward, Uncle Doc and Cousin Rush are by the fireplace, spitting and smoking and talking about over the mountain. And I am there myself, listening. Farther back from the fire, Mama is peeling apples. Granny Fanny is winding her hanks of wool, 
and her old gargoyle clock is ticking. Elizabeth is holding little Jim on her lap, and Aunt Melindy sets in the rocker in her fat black sateen dress, her hands folded in perfect content. Up above us, the picture of Captain Jim hangs on the wall. I can see all this before me in the night, and then it fades away, and I see my brother, young Jim, now sixty-nine years old, still farming our land, sowing lime by helicopter over Bridger's Gap, or I see Blix, Jim's and Annabelle's son, and then Blix's only son, little Jamie, nine years old, who sometimes helps his grandfather turn out the coral rocks or wrestle big bales of hay up into the barn that was once our faded cottage. Sometimes I see my hepatica rock with the walking fern and maidenhair, or my white calf named Lily. Sometimes I can see Clarence Smith, our funeral director, looking down at G.D.'s grave and saying, Many a lame dog did this man help over the stile. Next week, we'll take a break from the world's news and woes to relax and share stories from the folks of Appalachia. I hope you'll join me for our annual holiday special on the next Living on Earth. wondering what might make a great holiday gift, we have 20 book ideas for you. That's right. Thanks to Josie Glacius, the book review editor of Discover Magazine, we have a rundown of her best of the year on our website, livingonearth.org. Here's a sample. If you're looking for a really dramatic book, you can't go wrong with the rarest of the rare stories behind the treasures at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. This has beautiful pictures of very unusual objects as well as a very lively text. And the writer, Nancy Pick, relates this marvellous story of Vladimir Nabokov. He actually found a gynandromorph butterfly on his family's Russian estate as a youth, but sadly the butterfly was crushed when his stout Swiss governess sat upon his tray of specimens. <laughs> to hear more, just log on to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org to hear an interview with Josie Glacius and get her complete list of the 20 best nature books of the year, and maybe you'll find a great gift idea. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Christopher Bullock and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. Happy holidays. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Ford. 
committed to developing cleaner forms of transportation that don't compromise your needs or the environment. FordVehicles.com slash environment. The National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Town Creek Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.